You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Exciting career changes. Yeah, they could be in your future, but what does that mean for your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Get the expertise you need to help you dream more, demand more, and do more. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money. If you are listening to this episode the day that we publish it, then let me just say happy Friday. I hope you guys all have something fun going on this weekend. And if you have a party to go to or a dinner that you're whipping up for friends, you may already be asking yourself the question, what kind of wine should I buy? Specifically, what kind of budget-friendly wine should I buy? Because it is all too easy to walk into a wine shop these days, choose a bottle based on a fancy name or a beautiful label. Yeah, I've done that. Only to find that the price tag is even more. Last year alone, wine sales in the U.S. totaled $78.4 billion, billion with a B. And Americans, we drink more wine than any country in the world. And while I truly adore my nightly glass of wine, it can really get expensive very quickly. But here's the thing. We all want the best possible wine at the most affordable price. We want to enjoy every sip. And if we're bringing it to an event or to a dinner, then we want to bring one that people will compliment. And let's be honest, we want to bring one that looks like we spent a fair amount of money, even if we got it for a steal. So what do we need to look for when we're shopping for wine? How can we ensure that we are getting the best possible vintage for our money? We have so many questions, and I don't know about you, but I am ready to feel less overwhelmed when I walk into a wine shop. Fortunately, today we're going to demystify the Moscato and shed some light on the Pinot Noir, and we're going to do it with Victoria James, Director of Beverage and Partner at the Michelin-starred Coat Restaurant in New York City, also in Miami. She has worked in restaurants since she was 13 years old and became certified as a sommelier at 21, the youngest in the country at the time. She's also the author of Wine Girl, The Trials and Triumphs of America's Youngest Sommelier. Victoria, welcome. We're so happy you could join us. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about you. You got your sommelier certification at 21, which is when many people have barely started drinking, I guess, at least legally. What was it about wine that made you want to do this at such a young age? So I know most people don't become, you know, sommeliers at the age of 21, but I kind of fell in through it, you know, via restaurants. I started working in restaurants when I was a teenager and bartending in college. And then I realized I knew nothing about beverage, spirits, wine, especially. And it seemed this daunting, crazy world. And that instantly you know, intrigued me. So I started reading wine books and from there took wine courses. Next thing you know, I'm a college dropout who's the country's youngest sommelier. And here we are today. Well, now you're actually the beverage director at a Michelin-starred restaurant, right? Or several Michelin-starred restaurants. Tell us a little bit about that job. I mean, what do you do every day? 
you know, it sounds quite glamorous. We're very lucky. We have Coat here in New York City, which is Michelin starred, and also Coat in Miami, which is Michelin starred. And, you know, as the partner here, as well as director of beverage, my job is not only a staff of 300 people between the two units, but also everything liquid. So my day-to-day is, you know, of course, managing all of the different beverage departments, bartenders, sommeliers in each restaurant, being in the restaurant, being present there as well and helping with service and helping with guests, but also managing a multi-million dollar beverage program, which is insanely exciting, choosing which wines, which spirits, which teas and coffees make their way into our program. So really, I mean, there's a lot of numbers and money in it as well. Teas and coffees are part of a sommelier's purview. And water also. Wow. All right. So my biggest question, diving into wine, is I think probably many people's biggest question, which is, does good wine have to be expensive? But Victoria, before you answer it, maybe you could just tell us what we're paying for. What actually goes into a wine. We're talking about the hours of labor, the care for the soil, the shipping to our favorite store. Does good wine, when you factor all of those things in, have to be expensive? That's a great question. And I think it's quite nuanced. So apologize in advance for, you know, my very short answer, because I could talk about this for hours. But it's twofold. So the first part is, Wine does have to be a certain kind of expensive. It does have to be at least over, you know, I'm talking $15, $20 a bottle. Below that, there is some good wine. It does exist out there, but it is very, very hard to find. You need like, you know, so many ninja skills to find those really great bottles, you know, under $15. Because to your point exactly, there's a certain amount of just sheer labor that goes into it. It's a very special process. Wine is unlike anything else in the world. Oftentimes it's compared to music and art in that it's this otherworldly thing, but realistically it can only be made once a year. So vodka you can make all year long, beer you can make all year long, and of course the larger the quantity you're able to offer a $10 bottle of vodka, you know, a $2 beer. Not so with wine. You only have one harvest. And so there is a certain threshold. The second point, though, of this twofold response is, no, it doesn't have to be crazy, crazy expensive. One could compare it to art in that, for example, there's only one Mona Lisa in the world, and there's only, you know, a couple bottles left in the world of 1947 Cheval Blanc from Bordeaux, and that's why it is so expensive. But, you know, wine is a grocery, and as a sommelier, I believe wine should be joyful, and something doesn't have to be expensive to be joyful. So what are your rules of thumb? What is your checklist? Is a cheap California white going to always be better than a $30 bottle from Italy, for example? Like where are the wine hacks that we need to know the minute that we set foot in the store, if indeed we should be buying at the store rather than online? Yeah, I, it's it's very hard because, you know, in the wine world, there are so many regions, there are so many producers. So it's hard to say like one umbrella, this place always makes wine that's cheap and good, right? One thing I will say that is it's always usually the case. The one example I give is Muscadet, which is a really crisp mineral driven white from the Loire Valley. And you'd be hard pressed to find a bottle over $20. And it's usually quite good, quite high quality, and very, very delicious for the price point. So I always recommend that one. 
However, the best money hack I can give anyone who's looking to find good wine at good prices is befriend your local wine merchant, your wine shop you trust, because it's not your job to be the expert, it's theirs, and just tell them how much you want to spend, tell them you want a wine without a bunch of weird stuff added into it, and they can really help you. Buy by the case, you always get better pricing if you buy by the case. Build a little wine cellar in your apartment, squirrel it in your closet, under the bed, whatever it takes, but that's the best way to get the most for your money. Are there breaks in prices? I'm sort of thinking of the world of credit scoring, right? And in the world of credit scoring, there are these breaks where you get better interest rates. So if you're over 660, you do better. If you're over 720, you do better. Is there a bigger difference, say, between a $30 bottle and a $50 bottle than there is between a $50 bottle and a $70 bottle, or even going down to the $15 bottle that you talked about earlier. I mean, is that the level at which we should be starting? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And the short answer is yes, definitely. So just to do a really quick rundown, the average retail markup on bottles of wine is 1.5, right? Whereas restaurants, there's a lot more labor. You're paying hundreds of people and it's a huge pageantry. So it's usually around three to three and a half times markup. So it's substantially more, right? We have way more bills to pay and are less profitable. But there is a sliding scale. So for example, if you're in a retail wine shop, you would mark up more aggressively those inexpensive bottles. So you actually get a better value if you buy a more expensive bottle. So if you're buying a bottle that's $300 retail, it's actually probably not going to see as large of a markup as those inexpensive bottles. So when you come to like our restaurants, for example, we really want to incentivize the serious wine drinkers to to drink great wine. And so everything that's over $500 on our wine list is retail markup, which is pretty rare. So it's a sliding scale. The more money you spend, the more money you save, I guess. (laughs) I think it's nice to think about it that way. And I don't think I realized that there was a bigger markup on the cheaper bottles. So that's just good information to take with us. What about regionally? I know California is home to the largest wine region in the U.S. It represents 95% of all exported wine from the United States. But does that mean that we should be looking at California if we want a good deal? Or is something that was grown here and bottled here in some part of the country, especially now, going to be a better deal than something that was imported? Yeah, again, like, you know, these, this, it's, it's a little bit trickier than just a straight answer. But I will say, you know, I'm a big fan of, of California wine, of local wine. My husband makes wine in California, so I, I won't say anything negative about it. But I will say that there, right now it's just really, it's extremely difficult to make a winery successful in America. You look at Napa alone, if you want to buy an acre worth of land, you're spending millions and millions of dollars. So the startup costs are extravagant, and as such, those wines are are quite expensive. However, if you look to some older wine regions in Europe who, you know, they've been doing this for centuries, their costs have already been, you know, paid off by their great-great-great-grandmother, their land and such, that's really where you get that great value. So I would say the lesser-known regions in Europe Europe is really where you find the great value. Like Muscadet, I mentioned earlier. Pockets of Spain and Italy are just insane in terms of value. 
Yeah. Italian reds are sort of where I gravitate when I'm looking for something that's not California. I mean, our listeners know I like a good California Chardonnay and have to have my arm twisted in order to drink something else. But I like the Montepulcianos and the Montalcinos as well. We're going to take a quick pause there. Grab a sip of something if you like. To remind everyone that this podcast is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Whether you are up with the sun or burning the midnight oil, you work really hard to excel in your career. It takes grit, it takes determination, it takes skill to get where you are today. But what if things change? Maybe you wanna open your first business or go for that promotion or move for your dream job. How does that affect your wealth? How does that affect your financial life? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because with an integrated approach to wealth management, you'll get the expertise you need to build momentum with your finances and your career. I am talking with Victoria James, sommelier and partner at the Restaurant Coat in New York City and Miami. What tips would you give to somebody who is just standing in the wine shop and is paralyzed and doesn't have any idea of what to look for? I mean, where should they start? Yeah, this was definitely me when I just bought a car. I have no idea what I'm doing there. So I always say ask for help. I think people often have in mind that, you know, someone's just trying to rip you off and sell you a bunch of things. But I always say the first thing to ask, you know, your sales merchant for is say you want a wine from a small grower. And what that means is because it's usually family owned and stuff, they put their name on the label. And so usually there's a certain amount of pride that goes into that. And therefore they, they tend to, you know, farm in a much more responsible manner. They don't put a bunch of additives in the wine They're in the United States. You're allowed to add up to 75 ingredients besides just grapes into wine. And it's, it can be quite extraordinary. So ask your wine merchant for a wine made from a small grower. If they don't know what that is, then you should leave the wine shop. That's not a very good one. And if they do, then great. They'll help you find something delicious. Some of the wines that I buy are through wine clubs. We've traveled in Napa and traveled in Sonoma, and I've subscribed to some wine clubs. I know that Coat has its own direct-to-consumer wine club. I got a survey last week from Barron's. They're thinking of launching a club. Can you tell us a little bit more about these club worlds, how they work, and what you should be looking for? Yeah, you know, it's tricky because there are many different types of wine clubs. What I will say about Code is we're one of only three uh, restaurant-based wine clubs in America. For us, it's all about, you know, kind of marketing of already the Coat wine brand. We don't make any money from it. And we're lucky to have myself and, you know, a master sommelier already on payroll, right? So we're not really trying to make money. Outside of that, though, normal wine clubs, it's really tricky, it's the margins are so slim. And as a result, oftentimes they'll buy wine in bulk and relabel it under their own label. And it's not very good, to be honest with you. I can count probably on one hand the number of wine clubs I would personally join as a sommelier. And even then, it's, it's quite limited. So I would say if there's a winery you know and trust, those are worth joining for sure. They do put some cool things aside from their wine club members. And if there's a merchant you really do trust, then go for it. But I would say be quite wary because there are many scams out there. 
How about glasses? I know, again, you've launched your own line of glasses, which is really exciting. What can you tell us about picking the right kind of glass for the different kinds of wine that exist? I mean, I got to be honest with you. I just try to gravitate to a glass that's not so big because I just fill it up too high and end up drinking too much. (laughs) Yes, that is very real. I think it's interesting, you know, speaking to like, you know, sommeliers who really were starting in the 80s and 90s here, we thought of wine based off of region, right? Like you thought of Chianti, you thought of Bordeaux, you thought of Burgundy. And now we think of it almost by variety. Like you would think of Chardonnay or you would think of Cabernet. And as such, there is so much marketing towards these different types of glasses. I mean, it's overwhelming. (laughs) There's like a glass for Pinot Noir from Burgundy and there's a glass for Pinot Noir from California. And then one thing you know, then you have like next thing there's, you know, you have millions of glasses. So for me, it's kind of silly because in the sommelier world, you don't think of wine that way. You think of it based off of where it's from in the world cool or warm climate. So with Lennox, we created these signature series glasses. There's a small one for cooler regions, because when you're in a cool region, for example, in the Mosul in Germany, in the Burgundy in France, Loire in France, you have these wines that are going to be a little bit lighter in body and alcohol, and they'll be tartar, they'll be higher acidity. So really, it's where it's from in the world that affects how it will taste. And as such, you need glasses that kind of make that wine better and highlight all of those delicious things. As far as pairing your various wines with the foods that you're eating, do you adhere to the rules or have the rules just been thrown out like so many rules these days? There's one rule that's golden and that you can never go wrong with. And that's the saying, what grows together goes together. So it's the reason when you're traveling in Tuscany and you're having this red sauce pasta with Chianti, it's just like the most magical experience. Then you come home and you open that same bottle of Chianti and you're like, this isn't as magical as when I was in Tuscany. (laughs) And it's just because (laughs) wine is meant to be had with food and it's meant to be enjoyed in that way. And those things have been developed together for centuries. So the perfect pairing for Chianti is that red sauce pasta. And when you have one without the other, it's not quite as magical, right? And so that's how I always think about food. If someone says, this is what I'm having tonight for dinner, I think, okay, what dish is that most similar to? So you can study the historic origins there. For example, at Coat, we're a Korean steakhouse. So lots of steak and lots of fermented vegetables. And everyone always asks, what do I have with Korean food? Wine? That's like, that's crazy. And not necessarily. I always think of Germanic countries where there's lots of meat, lots of hot dogs and sausages and sauerkraut, right? And fermented cabbage, which is really kind of like kimchi. And so always like these Germanic wines are so, so great with our cuisine. And then Coat Wine Club, we also always, we don't just send you a bottle of wine because that's like, someone's like, what do I do with it? It always comes with a pairing directly from the winemaker and usually a recipe. So even if someone says, you know, I hate Sauvignon Blanc, well, wait until you have this Sauvignon Blanc from Sancerre, where the winemaker pairs it with this goat cheese tart. And then you have those things together. And all of a sudden it's like, I get it. All of a sudden it starts to make sense. 
Do you have particular bottles that you gravitate toward? And besides the Muscadet, are there particular bottles in particular price ranges that this is the bottle that I want to celebrate my birthday with? This is the bottle that I want to drink when I just had a fight with my husband. This is the bottle that I'm going to drink at four in the morning when my one-year-old will not sleep. I mean, are there default wines that we should be glomming onto? Yeah, definitely. If I want something cheap and cheerful, you know, it's just a simple like pizza wine, end of, you know, day of work, you're pouring it, you're not really thinking about it. I always have in my fridge a bottle of Beaujolais. So this is actually a red wine, but you serve it slightly chilled. So it's very, very sessionable, very easy drinking. If I want to splurge a bit, if it's a special occasion, it's either a champagne made from a small grower or it's white burgundy, which to me is the best white wine in the world. It's, you know, French Chardonnay and it's concentrated and powerful, but still has bright, refreshing acidity. And it's just the best. As you think about your life and your career, there are a lot of young women we know who listen to this podcast. And I'm wondering, as they're mulling their choices, do you think a a career in the food space, it's, you know, it's very trendy, it's very hot, we're all watching the bear, we're thinking about how these worlds work and these worlds exist. Is this something that you would recommend and would you recommend it to a particular sort of a woman? That's a great question. So, I mean, I I also wrote this book that came out right in the pandemic called Wine Girl, which talks about sort of the trials and triumphs of becoming the youngest sommelier and entering this space that's an old boys club. And it's really hard and it was really difficult. The restaurant industry seems glamorous. There's, you know, Bourdain elements of it and, and the bear certainly glamorizes a lot of it too. But it's a really hard place to work. It really is. You're dealing with the general population with 300 plus people a night, sometimes they're not very nice. And, and sometimes they don't really want to hear about what you think about a bottle of wine. So I think it's not for everybody, but if you like people and you know, you're very curious, it's a great place to work. And I think that, you know, the world of wine is big and expansive. You don't just have to be a sommelier in a restaurant. There's many things you could do in the wine world. And I highly encourage people to seek it out, especially if you really, really love learning and constantly pushing yourself and being in very fun, you know, unique environments. What have you learned about negotiating that male-dominated environment? It's been an incredible challenge. And I think when I was first starting my career, I didn't really know how to navigate it. But now that, you know, I'm in a position of power, it's really important to me that, you know, the women, that everyone actually at our restaurants feel safe. And so that's why we've instituted, you know, a zero tolerance policy for harassment from colleagues, from guests, because the customer is not always right. And also introducing a lot of, you know, these young budding sommeliers to different types of institutions besides just the old boys club, you know, and uh, we also have a nonprofit wine empowered where we offer tuition free wine classes to women and people of color, because a diverse wine industry is a healthy one. And the more people from different backgrounds we bring to the table, the better the wine world will be. I can hear ears just perking up all over America and the world about those classes. Tell me a little bit more about them and how people who are perhaps interested in learning more can get that information. Yeah, it's called Wine Empowered. You can find us on Instagram or wine-empowered.com. 
We're starting our taking applications again this fall for spring next year, and it's open to anyone who works in the restaurant industry and hospitality. And the idea here is that we equip them with a bit of education and really empowers them to progress in their career. And it gives them this really invaluable resource because wine is complicated, it's expensive to study, and so we really want to equip people with this bit of education so it will empower them and they can build their career and become the next leaders in our world. Thank you so much, Victoria, for all of this. Thank you for making time for us today. This was such a pleasure. I learned a lot and I'm going to have to step up my price point just a little bit because I know that it's going to get me a better value. And we're all about value here at Her Money. Victoria, thanks again. Thank you. Before we wrap things up here, let me just take a moment to point out that Her Money is also supported by BCU, one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. BCU helps members make smart financial decisions by offering the products, services, and caring support they need for whatever stage of life they're in. Find out if you're eligible by visiting bcu.org. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Victoria James for giving us an insider's view of wine. I don't know about you, but I'm going shopping for Muscadet. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.